Are you one of our regular students for Self-Improvement Wednesday? Each week you get to learn something new. Your lesson this week, what is extinction? It's a phrase we use all the time, but what does it mean to scientists? Your teacher is Richard Kingsford, Professor of Environmental Science at the University of New South Wales. Richard, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Richard. Yeah, we are learning a lot about it. There's a a David Attenborough documentary for a start on, on extinction. Yes, and WWF have just got released their State of the Planet and probably a few people might have heard about the Extinction Rebellion and recently stopped deliveries from the Murdoch printing presses in England. And I I guess everybody knows, you know, it's the end of a species or group of species, but um, our scientific knowledge goes well beyond this. And really the, the paradox of extinction is, you know, there's lots of effort going into stopping it. But then most of the world's species will eventually become extinct. So, you know, we know, for example, that probably 99% of the world's species have become extinct in the last three and a half billion years. And things like our ancestors, you know, the Australopithecines and Homo erectus and, of course, the Neanderthals, even though we've got about 2% of our DNA in, from Neanderthals, they've, they've all become extinct. So extinction is part of life? Yeah, it is a bit. I mean, there's this constant natural churn of extinction and evolution going on with species all the time. Um, and it, I guess, you know, it might seem an easy cop-out to say, well, it's natural and why is, what's all the fuss about? But I guess the reason extinction is such a major problem today is, is it's the rate of extinction. It's probably between 100 to 1,000 times or maybe even more faster than the sort of natural extinction rate that we see in the fossil record. And I guess, you know, with the spread of COVID-19, people are all beginning to understand about sort of exponential rates of change. Mm. Well, you talk about the the extinctions of the past. Often these have happened in these mass extinction events. I guess the one we're, we're most aware of is the dinosaurs. Yeah, so, you know, that that's the fifth last extinction, but there have been five, um, and, you know, that one... And all of these sort of five have, have wiped out 50 to 80% of all the organisms on Earth. And the, the one in the Cretaceous, which was 66 million years ago when the dinosaurs were around, and they didn't actually, um, I think I've talked about this before, they didn't um, wipe out all the dinosaurs because some of them became birds. But um, it obviously did a, a major, had a major impact. And I guess where we're now is there's a strong scientific consensus that we're in the world's sixth mass extinction event, which is really quite different to every other one because it's caused by us, you know, one species. And it's why today's geologic period is increasingly known as the Anthropocene. Um, The latest Living Planet Index that I was talking about, published by WWF, estimates that the 21,000 wildlife populations that are being monitored have declined by a, a massive 68% between 1970 and 2016. Okay, the impact of, of human beings. Some people see the world very much through human, a human lens and say, well, uh, we're the dominant species, uh, you know, in a sense, what does it matter as long as we're happy? Yeah, and I guess this is a real challenge for us because we've become... Um, many of us more and more disconnected from the natural environment. So, um, but, you know, uh, we're increasingly understanding that we're very dependent on it. You know, we're inextricably linked to the health of the planet, um, either directly or indirectly. 
um, many of the Earth's organisms really um, serve us and and I mean the most obvious dependency is probably the insects funnily enough because most of our agricultural crops depend on them doing a pollination job for us uh, and there are sort of worrying concerns about um, loss of insect diversity mm. recently and then there's a sort of idea what what's known in the scientific literature the pop rivet hypothesis which was first put forward by the great Stanford professor, Paul Ehrlich. Okay, sorry, and pop, he said, well, pop, pop imagine an aeroplane with all its panels stitched together together by pop rivets. Um, probably not a good analogy today, given where we're at. But um, the idea that each one of those rivets could be a species. And the question is, you know, how many species would you need to lose before the ecosystem collapsed? Or the analogy, obviously, how many pop rivets mm -hmm. before the plane fell out of the sky. The analogy with the plane is that we don't really know, do we? You, you sort of think, oh, well, surely we could live without 5% of those pop rivets, but, but what happens when it's 6% and what happens when it's 12%? Yeah, and we don't know which ones are really doing the best job. So, you know, you might say we've got 70% of them, but we might lose, um, you know, 5% of those species, but they're the ones that really make the system tick. So, a bit like sort of engineering, we, we tend to think about um, the importance of redundancy and, and having sort of um, ways of making sure these ecosystems don't collapse. So it's all really sort of tied up together. Mm. If the bees don't do the work, uh, maybe the flies will. Yes, um, but, you know, if you lose the bees, you're in, in big trouble because the, the flies might not be able to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't know which pop rivet is doing the is, – is crucial. That's it, right. In, in, these, in this sort of field of extinction studies, there's this thing called red listing. Can you explain that and how it works? Yeah, so this is really the core of how people look at what's happening to species. And, and the, two, the two key things to remember are – you know, how many individuals are there of, of a particular species and, and how extensive is their range or habitats or distribution? And the theory and the data tell us that the more individuals there are of a particular species, the more that species is spread out and, and overall the lower its risk of extinction. And then, of, of course, what happens then, the, the risk categories extend from least concern to vulnerable, um, endangered, critically endangered, uh, extinct in the wild and then extinct. And there are thresholds for those numbers and the spread for each one of those categories. And this interesting phrase, the extinction vortex, explain that. Yeah, so this is interesting because you might think, well, you know, if we had two and they could breed, why would we worry? Um, and, and the problem really is that once you get small populations, it's almost like they're going to go down the plug hole like a vortex. Um, and there's quite a, a good example of, of these, these birds called heath wrens in the, in the United States. They were about, they sort of took like birds. And, and in 1908, there were about 50 of them just because they'd been hunted and habitat destruction. So all stops were pulled out to stop them going extinct. But by 1932, they were gone. And it really wasn't that they weren't breeding and doing the right thing um, it, and, you know, they weren't being hunted. It was just a series of one-off accidents. There was a fire. Somehow poultry disease got in there. Some predatory birds had a go. So um, it's a real issue because you got these sort of natural processes that 
significant mm-hmm. impact on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and another major issue when you've got low numbers is in breeding, which is, um, you know, breeding with your with your siblings or cousins isn't very good in terms of the genetics of the progeny or as so many of the you know world's royal families found out in earlier times <laughs> but that's why zoos, um, zoos spend such a lot of time with their stud books don't they that's right and so trying to work out who's related to whom and making sure that you've got the genetic variability sort of works from gorillas to bilbies it's it's a very important part of the way we manage um, populations. I mean, that sounds, you know, that's a very grim report of, of how vulnerable populations are, how we're so many are on, really on the edge of this extinction vortex. I, I suppose the other side of that is it does seem that there are real efforts going on, at, at least in some places. Absolutely. And there's lots we can do. I mean, we think about these threatening processes that are driving that mass extinction and they're sort of habitat loss and degradation, pollution, climate change, overexploitation, invasive species and disease. But there's lots of policies that can work at different scales. Um, a lot of it's about political will. There are great things like rewilding and reintroducing species back into the wild. Um, but it's really just, you know, how can we do more of that so that we've got a, um, our generation leaves the planet in as good a shape as we had it for future generations. And yeah, well, uh, let's hope there's a, there's a call to arms. Hey, uh, Richard Kingsford, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thanks very much. Yes, uh, Richard Kingsford. With another Self-Improvement Wednesday, Professor of Environmental Science at the University of New South Wales. You can listen back to his lesson, of course, on our website, abc.net.au slash sydney. There you'll also find details of how to subscribe to the free Self-Improvement Wednesday podcast. Why not sign up for Thank God It's Friday as well while you're there. Next week, Sea Snake Science with Dr Vanessa Prota from the Marine Predator Research Group at Macquarie University. That's Self-Improvement Wednesday next week.